Hey guys, um, so from time to time, we like to check in with our favorite guests. And since the November election, the topic of abortion has been in the news a lot. So we thought that this would be a good time to check in with Pratima Gupta. She's that OBGYN we talked to last year who also performs abortions. So we called up Pratima and it turned out she had way more to say than we expected. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to play you Pratima's original episode that aired last year, February 2016. And then once that's done, we've got a whole new chapter of Pratima's story. Here we go. I got an email from a listener recently. My name is Pratima Gupta. Pratima is an OBGYN in San Francisco. I do everything from pap smears to delivering babies to providing abortions. This woman, Pratima, she delivers babies and terminates pregnancies, which are two things that may seem like complete opposites. But the truth is, they're part of one big continuum. You know, I can't tell you how often I'm talking to moms, and while they're telling me about their child, they also feel the need to tell me about an abortion that they had. You know, like the termination and the birth are all part of the same story. So it totally makes sense to have one doctor who does both. But it turns out this job combination, it's really rare. It's its interesting how people just label you as, you know, the abortion doctor. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. In today's episode, we will hear what it's like to be one of the few doctors who help women through births and abortions. Pratima's father was an obstetrician. He worked long hours, of course, and if one of his patients went into labor, his schedule could turn on a dime. When Pratima was a kid, she'd be out with him at the mall or something, and and his beeper would go off. He'd have to rush over to the hospital to deliver a baby with Pratima in tow. And, you know, I was there in the hospital for hours on end, you know, just doing circles on those swivel chairs, and the nurses would be doing, you know, French braids on my hair, and I'd be eating graham crackers, and... You know, still to this day, I have trouble drinking juice boxes and eating graham crackers from that, those memories of that as a child. Yeah, and I just wanted that time with my dad. And so I thought, I'm like, I never want to do this. I'm not going to do this when I grow up or do this to my children. And of course, you know, I went through, through college and tried to stay away from medicine, but it kept sort of gravitating me back towards, you know, my brain was definitely geared towards science and altruism that involved in medicine of helping other people and making a real difference. Pratima was especially drawn to helping women. She loved the variety in reproductive health. You know, it covered pregnancy, cancer, menopause, delivering babies. She was crazy about babies. And in the end, that pull to help women overpowered her desire to not follow in her father's footsteps. So she went to medical school, studied obstetrics and gynecology, just like him. And she did rotations in a specialty called family planning, which basically means she got trained in how to do abortions. She was surprised to learn that it was a pretty simple procedure. And patients are are often shocked that it just takes a minute or two for the actual abortion procedure to occur. You know, the number of times people say, it's over, that's it, you know? And honestly, when I did my first abortion, that's how I felt. I was like, wow, that's actually not that technically complicated of a procedure. 
The patients themselves, now, now they were complicated. Sort of by definition, every abortion patient was at a crossroads in their life, and Pratima was completely compelled by their stories. There was the woman with no partner and no family to support her, the woman who wanted to continue school, the woman who had been raped by a family member, the woman who already had a bunch of mouths to feed. Frankly, yeah, it's oftentimes the birth control failed or the, you know, the condom slipped or something and of people who already have children. They don't have the resources to support an additional child because they're already stretched thin supporting the children that they have. It turns out 60% of people getting abortions are already parents. That's a lot. And that's why when Pratima interviewed for the job she has now at an OB practice, she argued that they should hire her because she felt the patients needed her desperately. Like if they wanted to continue their pregnancy and get prenatal care, you know, congratulations, and they'd stay and take care of you and give you um, like a tote bag and a water bottle. But then if you were pregnant and it was undesired, they would refer you to the abortion clinic down the street. And I thought that was, you know, really discriminatory care they were offering our women. So I, when I interviewed, I proposed internalizing and keeping all of our patients who wanted abortions and letting them get their services with us. And my, you know, personal goal around that was to sort of normalize abortion care that, and that literally is how my day is, is that, you know, patient number one could be a pap smear, patient number two could want birth control, patient number three could be an abortion, and patient number four could have menopause issues. And so it's just part of my day and mixed in through the normal stream because I look at it as part of normal women's health care. When Pratima said this, it, it made total sense to me that all of these practices would go together. But then I looked up how many OBs offer abortions, and, and I could not believe what I found. It's just 14%. 14%. That is it. This is according to a 2011 study in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology. And that same study said that 97% of OBs, so most of them, have had patients ask for an abortion. But it turns out that less than a quarter of OBs, so not very many of them, have had any formal training in abortion at all. And Pratima found that even in the medical community, this job combination can have a real stigma. Because I showed up and so many of our staff were like, oh, Dr. Gupta, oh, we've heard about you. We've heard about your work. We, we, you know, and somebody even actually once said to me, I heard about your dirty work. And I was kind of shocked and offended. And I said, actually, it's very clean and it's very safe. And I'm helping women like we all do. But um, when I was first hired, I literally felt like I had the scarlet letter, like big A on my you know, face, the A being for abortion provider, not for adulteress. And, and what do your parents think about the fact that you provide abortions? You, you said that your dad um, was an OBGYN. Um, was that part of his work as well? It wasn't, actually. So my dad, um, he had a private practice, OBGYN, and he did not uh, provide abortions in his practice. What is interesting when you ask about how my family felt about it. So I did a, after I completed my training in um, OBGYN, I did what's called a fellowship in family planning. 
And when my mom would talk to her friends about what I was doing, you know, in classic parent style where they like to brag about their children, people hear family planning and and they would think I was doing an infertility fellowship um, because it's sort of the more known, oh, so she's you know, helping people get pregnant is what my mom's friends would ask. And my mom would sort of laugh and say, oh, no, actually the opposite, you know. And I, you know, would tell my mom, I said, mom, it's not quite the opposite, but it's more giving women the tools to decide when is the best time for them to become a parent. Pratima's making it sound easy here. You know, like you can just sit down and logically figure out when is the right time to become a parent. But of course, it's almost never like that. Coming up, Pratima finds this out for herself. Stay with us. We're back with OBGYN Pratima Gupta. Pratima met her husband when she was doing her fellowship. He's an engineer who was starting his own tech company, so he understood her crazy hours. Pratima says he joked that he had a doctor fetish because he liked dating women who were committed to their work. He proposed just six weeks after their first date. They took it slower with starting a family. After four years, they decided they were ready. So Pratima removed her own IUD, you know, as you do. I don't even know how you get at the right angle to do that. Anyway, they got pregnant their first month trying. Pratima had all the early symptoms she had heard about from her patients, you know, the sore breasts, the hunger, the fatigue. The first trimester seemed totally normal. And then there was something like a little maternal intuition kicked in. I was like, something doesn't doesn't feel right. And I went into one of my exam rooms and actually ultrasounded myself, just put the ultrasound on my belly. Is, is this something that, that um, OBs are supposed to do, check themselves? I don't know about supposed to do, but I would have to say the vast majority of us do do it because we have the, uh, have ultrasounds at our disposal. But um, And I knew right away that it was not normal. And so then I called a colleague of mine, a high-risk pregnancy specialist, who then performed a more detailed ultrasound. He saw that essentially the contents of the fetus's brain were um, kind of outside of its body. And so it was an abnormality that, you know, couldn't survive. And um, we were pretty devastated, my husband and I. You know, we'd gone from, we were just so ecstatic. And it's hard, you know, I, I, despite everything I tell my patients, I started, you know, did the exact opposite of my advice and started planning names and imagining the, you know, my delivery and imagining this life with the child and then, um, unfortunately, this, you know, was a pregnancy that could not survive. And so I um, had to go through a termination myself, go through an abortion myself. Pratima sounds so matter-of-fact here. She says that's because of her training. In medical school, they taught her to compartmentalize her emotions, you know, so that her emotions would not get the better of her when dealing with patients in difficult situations, which, you know, is something she does every day, like several times a day. That's her job. And she's kind of brought that compartmentalizing into her own life. She can sort of become her own doctor in her brain and and shut off the emoting. But even doctors can't always be masters of stoicism. The other day, Pratima was going through a pile of papers, and she stumbled across the ultrasound picture from that pregnancy, and she just started bawling. 
Pratima says on top of dealing with a loss back then, she also found it really disorienting to be a patient. So everything from like when I was signing the consent form, I actually signed the consent form on the the line of the doctor as opposed to the line of the patient because that's where I was so used to signing Hmm. and, you know, had to sort of redo it because I was like, oh, no, I'm the patient in this scenario, not the doctor. It was, you know, definitely very intense and very overwhelming to go through all of that. And I think truly made me a better physician and a better abortion provider because of it, because now I can really truly understand what a lot of my patients are going through. Pratima says women feel all kinds of ways about their abortions, but there's this typical pattern she sees in a lot of her patients. You know, right after the procedure, they'll, they'll be hugging her, thanking her for giving them their life back. And then at the follow-up visit, a couple weeks later, they're feeling guilty. Not necessarily about the abortion, but about the fact that they feel relieved. There's this societal expectation that you should feel bad or you should feel a sense of loss or that you should grieve. And that's what surprised me, that patients felt guilty about their relief. And um, after going through the experience myself, I understood it because I think I um, just realized that that's actually a very normal emotion. After her own abortion, Pratima and her husband struggled with infertility. All the while, she was surrounded by pregnant ladies. She'd go to her job, deliver a baby, show someone a fetus's heartbeat on an ultrasound. Then, still in her scrubs, she'd run out for an appointment with her fertility specialist. So I've talked to a lot of women with fertility issues, and almost all of them talk about trying to avoid seeing pregnant ladies. You know, they'll like do an about face on the sidewalk whenever they see a pregnant person. But Pratima couldn't help being bombarded by pregnancy. She says that sometimes, despite her training to compartmentalize, she'd start looking at pregnant patients and think, why can't that be me? To cope, she threw herself into exercise. She actually did a triathlon to her doctor's chagrin. After a year and a half, though, Pratima's fertility treatments worked. She was pregnant again. What was that like when... um, Patients would come in and see you with your pregnant belly. It was uh, it was interesting the number of comments I got. You know, I was trying to hide it for a long time, wearing bigger scrubs and wearing my white coat really loose and buttoning it over my belly. Pratima didn't want her abortion patients to feel uncomfortable. But, you know, I got to a point where I just couldn't hide it anymore, despite my best efforts. And... One time I walked into a patient and her partner looks up at me and just said, dang, Dr. Gupta. And I just, he, you know, he just laughed and I was, it it, it just um, was something that patients often ask. And actually even my colleagues and nurses would say, don't you find it hard to do abortions right now while you're pregnant? And did you? I looked at it, you know, especially having gone through the experience of, you know, of an abortion myself, I looked at it as, you know, this was not their time to become a parent and to continue on with their pregnancy, but it was the right time for me. So that's how I looked at it. And it, I didn't find it difficult or challenging emotionally at all to provide their abortion while I was pregnant. Did it seem difficult on their part uh, to have an abortion performed on them by a woman who was pregnant? It 
you know, in some of the patients, in some scenarios, it did. And people sometimes say things or they would stare at my belly. And I was also, you know, during their consent process, I'd be worried that they would be distracted by it. So either when I saw them staring at my belly or when they would say something, I would just own up to it and explain to them that, you know what, it's not the right time for you to become a parent, but it is for me. Pratima kept repeating this mantra to me. It wasn't their time. It was my time, which seemed strange to me because only moments before she'd been telling me about her own pregnancy that didn't work out at a time when she very much wanted to become a parent. And I can imagine that for parents like that, this it's not your timeline would just make you feel worse. And when I was pregnant, it was oftentimes those patients, my you know genetic termination patients, and their partners who would just stare at my big pregnant belly. And it was, you know, sometimes a little bit of a, you know, totally understandably, a little bit of animosity because they could see that the here I am, clearly visibly pregnant, you know, carrying a normal pregnancy. And here they are having to go through terminating an abnormal and highly desired pregnancy. And I remember that I had a patient and they were both, um, both of them were lawyers and they had an abnormality that was severe, but possibly could have survived. And they were having so much guilt around their decision to terminate this severely abnormal pregnancy because they said, if anyone could support and had the resources to support an abnormal pregnancy, it would be us. But they said, but but we can't, we can't do this. We don't want to do this. And they were really almost apologetic. And they were a couple who I shared my personal story with too, to explain to them that, you know, you don't need to apologize. You don't need to feel guilty about the decision that you're making because, you know, it's it's okay. This is not this is an abnormal pregnancy and you are fortunate to live in a, a time and in a place where you can access a termination and, and it's okay. Have you ever felt personally conflicted at all um, performing abortions? I have. I, uh, I had a patient once who requested an abortion for... Um, a specific gender, and um, I was really conflicted about that, you know, kind of doing a sex-selective abortion, but I realized, you know what, it's not my decision. It's not to decide if this is a right reason or not. You know, my role as her doctor and as her abortion provider is to make sure that she can get the care she needs, and if this is the reason why she wants to terminate her pregnancy, then I need to support her through that. Have your thoughts about um, providing abortions changed at all since becoming a mother? They they have, actually. I would actually say that I am more committed to being an abortion provider after becoming a mother. For example, in medicine, we sometimes have to work um, 24-hour shifts. And there was a time, you know, I remember distinctly where my son got up at three o'clock in the morning 
you know, the, and the next day I had to work a 24 hour shift and he got up and he was throwing up at three o'clock in the morning. And it was just like, oh man, of all nights to wake up vomiting and, you know, then you have to clean him up, strip the sheets, just the whole thing. And I realized, you know, I was okay doing this because I love him. And this was a very wanted and desired pregnancy. And, you know, if a woman has a undesired pregnancy, but yet is not able to access an abortion for whatever reason, and then has to go through all of the, you know, challenges of parenting, that would make it that much more difficult. You know, being a mom has made me even that much more committed to being an abortion provider to make sure that women can continue their pregnancies when they desire and can terminate them when they are undesired. And um, what does your son know about what you do for a living? Well, he's funny young because he is three, so it's hard for him to really understand. And so I ask him, what does mama do at work? And he says, help ladies. And so it's really sweet, you know, because I specifically made sure that I taught him that as opposed to saying deliver babies, because while that is part of my practice, I think it's not the only part of my practice. And I want him to understand that I am truly helping ladies. So so you said um, before that your dad did not have a lot of time for you because of his job. Um, and that led you to feel like you did not want to go into his line of work. Are you finding that you have time for your son? So my father was in a private practice where he had a pager and at any time could have to drop what he was doing and go to the hospital to deliver a baby. And I have chosen a practice that has a little bit different of a structure where we all take turns being on call and covering the labor and delivery ward. And it's really a family-friendly policy. So when I'm home, I'm home and I get to spend time with him and don't have to worry about being pulled away to have to go to the hospital. I wonder, do other parents um, in your community know what you do for a living? That's a great question. I um, I am reticent to immediately reveal what I do to the parents of his friends. And I even remember on his very first day of school when I went to drop him off and I saw his teacher had this very sweet, delicate cross necklace, and which could mean so much. I, you know, there, it, it didn't mean, but I just saw it in my I got a little nervous and my heart started racing a little bit. And I was, you know, I had this bag that says, I love pro-choice doctors. And I um, kind of switched it so that that logo was facing on the inside so that she wouldn't see that. And I just was like, I'm leaving my child in your hands for eight hours a day. And I didn't want it to cause any conflict between her and my child. Pratima says she feels mostly pretty safe, you know, living in a progressive place like San Francisco. But still, she's careful about certain things, like she kept her maiden name so her son would have a different last name from her, and she never puts their address on school directories. And, you know, we have to take small precautions like registering our car in my husband's name and at his work address so that if anybody were to take a picture of my license plate as I'm driving away from our abortion clinic, as people tend to do, they wouldn't necessarily know where what our home address is. It sounds so scary to me. Yeah. I I yeah, like I agree. I'm definitely am 
not scared, but I just have to take precautions. Like when somebody rings the doorbell, you know, like the the poor Greenpeace volunteer who was trying to get my signature on a petition, I just talked to her through the window because I was home alone with my son and I was not going to open the door because I didn't know who this individual was. There's a lot about being an abortion provider that is not rewarding. You have to fear for your safety, your, your family's safety. And even when you feel like you're really helping women in need, it all goes down in private. You know, most of the time, it's completely secret. When Pratima sees her patients out in the world, she can't even acknowledge them for confidentiality reasons. But then even if they do acknowledge her, it can be awkward. Once Pratima was out with her family at a cafe and their server spontaneously hugged her. She was a former patient. Pratima couldn't explain to her son what was going on. Still, when Pratima's in that room with her patients, it can be super intimate. And she sees this moment of termination as just one point in the long line of their gynecological care. Today, maybe it's an abortion. Next, they'll work together on birth control. In a few years, maybe she'll remove an ovarian cyst. And who knows? Somewhere along the way, there could be another pregnancy. And I make... My patients promise, I say, when you have your next healthy pregnancy, please let me know, send me a card, you know, send me a photo. And even a few patients have, when they have gotten pregnant again with healthy pregnancies, have then chosen to switch from their doctor to me as their doctor to provide their prenatal care in their subsequent healthy pregnancy. Oh, wow. What is what is that like for you to deliver a child from the same woman who you've, you've provided a, an abortion for? It is so wonderful and helps me. It, it just makes you realize this is exactly why I do this job. And it all makes sense is to help women through their challenging times and through the joyful and exciting times. And there's, you know, one woman who her children are, I think, like eight and six now, and she still sends me Christmas cards because of what we went through together, having gone through me terminating her abnormal pregnancy and then going through the pregnancy of her healthy six-year-old too. Okay, so that is the end of our original story from 2016. And um, a lot has happened in the year since we talked to Pratima. That's next. Don't go away. We are back with Dr. Pratima Gupta, who first talked to us in 2016. I recently gave her a call to check in. So Pratima, it's been almost exactly a year. What's new with you? <laughs> a lot, actually. So in addition to chasing around my now four-year-old son, who cruises around our neighborhood on his bicycle, I am actually six and a half months pregnant with another child. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. I... um Admittedly, I'm having a wee bit of like buyer's regret about it too, <laughs> but it is what it is now. And, you know, I'm trying to look forward to the positives, but not looking tell forward to the sleepless that. nights. Tell, and, tell me about your buyer's regret. Well, now with a four-year-old, it's so easy. You know, he has logic and we can have a conversation and we can talk about things and, you know, he can tell me what he wants for dinner. He can, he sleeps through the night. He's potty trained. It's lovely. And going back to starting all over to the sleepless nights and to the 
you know, when they're early mobile stage, when you have to constantly watch them and at any point they feel like they're an accident waiting to happen. I'm sort of not necessarily looking forward to that, but I think it'll be good ultimately to do it for him, to give him a sibling. Pratima says her son Nehru is pretty into that idea too. Oh my gosh, he is so excited. You know, I come home from work and I ask for a hug and he would rather give the baby a hug and not me. And um, (laughs) I don't know if he really gets how much his world is about to be rocked. Now, the pregnancy is not the only thing that's new with Pratima. Her world has kind of been rocked too. Do you want me to mention my recently elected position too or? Why, Why don't you say it? Yeah. Okay. And I am the vice chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party. Last summer, Pratima ran for political office in San Francisco, and she won. I did. I know. It was really exciting. I didn't think I would, actually, despite (laughs) all the odds, including myself. This running for office thing didn't come out of nowhere. Pratima had been politically active for a while, working with nonprofits to fight for abortion access, writing letters to the editor, op-eds. She'd even met with local legislators to talk policy. And the more actual politicians she talked to— the more she realized how few voices like hers were represented. Where were the women? And especially, where were the new moms? So Pratima enrolled in this program called Emerge California. It's sort of like a politics boot camp focused on helping more women get elected to office. And I was actually, you know, encouraged several times to run for office. And it's interesting, when I went through the Emerge training program, they tell us about, you know, women... Uh, have to be asked on multiple times, on average, you know, sort of four to five times to run for office before they actually will. Versus men, oftentimes you just need to ask them once. And and I feel like that was true in my case as well. You know, like I thought, I'm a doctor, like, how can I run for office? Like, this is all I know is medicine. And then once I learned more about what's involved in politics and how you don't want just a bunch of clone you know, career politician lawyers, it's nice to have a mix of people who have different backgrounds and different experiences. I decided to to go for it. How did you balance protecting your family's privacy around your job as an abortion provider and also make yourself as public as possible? Yeah, I, um, it's a great question. (laughs) I, I didn't hide my story as an abortion provider. I thought that it, You know, one of the things I really wanted to emphasize was the fact that I care for vulnerable populations and individuals. And I I remember the first time I said it at a campaign event and I, you know, had goosebumps and I was nervous that about people's reaction. And um, a good friend of mine said that he's like, I've never heard anybody say that out loud that they're an abortion provider. And he said, that's really powerful because... Here in San Francisco, where you know most people come, you know, purport to be pro-choice, it's a whole different level to actually do an abortion. Pratima says that as a doctor and a mom of a young child, she had a direct line to what voters were going through in a way that most politicians just don't. But actually, being a mom of a four-year-old doesn't exactly mix with politics. It was, you know, strange to bring him to events, and most people plan their events at bars because they don't even think about the fact that you might want to bring a child. And the number of hours that you have to spend sort of out hustling yourself, 
you know, I was up at early mornings at various transit stops and evenings during the commute rush hour, handing out flyers. It was a lot of time away from my family, which was difficult. The political the world, it's not really geared towards mothers of young children. Sometimes Pratima would bring Nehru to campaign events so she could spend more time with him. We would take the train over there and talk about what we were going to do. And then we would go there together and he could talk to people and have a snack. And I think it just was the reality of being a working mom is that you can't constantly have childcare at every moment. Um, it was funny because we would, I'd campaign oftentimes on the weekends at farmer's markets and I would bring him with me to like hand out flyers and at first I was like, is that weird? Is that contrived? Like, am I using my son as like a political pawn? But then someone else told me, they were like, you birthed him. You can, you know, like he's part of who you are. He's part of who shapes you in your decision making. So it's okay. And I think he kind of liked it after a while. But he kind of started calling it the like, are you going to go do vote for mama? Are you going to a vote for mama party? <laughs> Here's the thing. Pratima felt awkward bringing her preschooler to campaign events. But people noticed even more when Nehru wasn't there. How did people react to, to you being a mom as a candidate? Well, it's interesting you ask that because on more than one occasion, there were times when he wasn't with me and people would ask me, well, where's your child? And I was just surprised and offended at that question because as if that, you know, just the assumption that um, as a woman, he would be with me and that it wasn't okay to have childcare or have a partner or something who was watching him. Um, I think sometimes just we as women are oftentimes our own worst critic. You know, people, there were several women who were like, how can you do this to your, you know, you have a young child. How can you do this to him? How can you do this to your family? I mean, do you know what you're getting involved in and, and how can you be away from him like this? In spite of all that, Pratima did win. Her role as vice chair is, is basically to coordinate between San Francisco's Democratic Party and all the different Democratic clubs in the area. So this all went down during the Democratic primaries back in June 2016. Then, of course, we had the November general election. And Pratima says that since then, her political life and her job as a doctor have really collided Many of her patients depend on Obamacare subsidies for their health coverage, and in particular, for their birth control. And at this very moment, lots of them are not sure what their health care is going to look like in a year or two. Now, since this threat of the Affordable Care Act being repealed, on a daily basis, I see patients who are coming in asking for a full year supply of their birth control because they're worried that they might lose their coverage or they're opting for longer-term contraception, such as intrauterine devices or implants. Um, unfortunately, sometimes they're even asking if it's okay to you know, use birth control incorrectly. Like the pill, for example, needs to be taken every day to be effective. And I had a patient ask me if she could take it you know, every other day um, to stretch out how long, how many packs, how long the packs would last her so that she could stretch out her prescription for as long as possible. What's your answer to that? Um, no, unfortunately, you no, know, it is a daily medication and it needs to, to be taken every day to be effective. Pratima told me something else that was pretty sobering. I've even recently seen a, a few patients who previously had desired pregnancies and, you know, we're going through prenatal care and have now decided to terminate their pregnancies because they are relying on 
um, Obamacare, you know, on their health care subsidies and are concerned that if those are taken away, that they won't be able to adequately care for themselves and this future child too. So even patients who now are seeking abortions because of the threat of losing their health care coverage. This might sound like a pretty extreme reaction, especially right now, as news about Obamacare is shifting almost on a daily basis. But Pratima broke it down for me. She says that one of these patients was a private contractor. Her work was already a little unsteady to begin with. Another woman, a little younger, had been counting on having the support of her mom to help out with the new baby. But her mom is an undocumented immigrant. With so much uncertainty, Pratima says these women are now worried their lives are no longer stable enough to bring a new baby into the mix. There's been a lot of public discourse lately over um, what's going to happen to Roe v. Wade and just changing access to, um, like, more limitations on access to abortion in varying states. Um, As a woman yourself who... um, not only has provided abortions, but has uh, received one yourself under very difficult circumstances. What are your thoughts on on all of all of those conversations? I, I definitely am very concerned about that. There's already many states now that only have one abortion provider, where women have to travel hundreds of miles to get there. And I think many of those states are just looking for the opportunity to close that one clinic. And I think it's really unfortunate that these same politicians are not then increasing their support for any sort of social services because they're essentially strong-arming women into having children if they're not able to access an abortion, but yet there isn't any additional support for prenatal care or for um, raising your child afterwards. And as you and I both know, raising a child, it isn't easy. I mean, not just the financial burden, but the emotional burden and everything else that's involved. Yeah. So like, what would it have meant for you um, kind of physically and emotionally if you had not been able to have access to an abortion in your circumstance? It would have been really difficult and quite traumatic because, you know, in, in my personal situation, the baby couldn't have lived outside of the womb. So I essentially would have had to continue the pregnancy until a point where either the heart stopped or you know, delivering it and then just providing comfort, care and support until it passed away, which, um, you know, which is completely against what our family's wishes were at the time. Mm-hmm. So you, so you are a practicing OB, you have a four-year-old son, you're expecting another baby. How do you plan on, on pulling this all off? <laughs> we have a a master color-coded calendar, for sure. That's part of it that <laughs> that we live and, and die by, that each one of us right now has a color on the calendar. And then there's one color that means, like our family color, that it means some combination of the three of us. Pratima's new baby is due at the end of April. Being pregnant now and being a politician actually is also been eye-opening because people... It's like they avert their eyes and they don't even know what to say because it's a a world that a lot of the politicians don't um, don't know how to navigate, which is for me, it's so interesting because my professional world, I'm just surrounded by pregnant women all the time. And at work, you know, that's what I see for my patients most, you know, in some capacity. And then 
when I go to the political world, it's one where pregnancy makes people uncomfortable. Well, do you like, do you try to engage them on it or do you just kind of let it go? Well, sometimes I try and make a joke, you know, because people will like look and you see them look, their eyes go down and then they kind of look away quickly. And so I'll make a joke and just be like, yeah, I have a parasite. Pratima says there are lots of stereotypes about pregnancy and being a working mom. And she's hoping to slowly chip away at those, partly just by showing up. The California Democratic Convention is coming up in May, just a couple weeks after the baby's due. And Pratima says she's planning to carry the kid with her maybe even breastfeed on demand during meetings. And I'm hoping it'll just be baby's first convention, you know. And after her maternity leave, Pratima will be getting back to her old job, too, helping women in all aspects of their reproductive health. Pratima says that since November, she has seen a ton of women jumping into the political ring for the very first time. A lot of them have been reaching out to her, asking for advice about running their own campaigns. And there are actually a bunch of programs out there to help women do exactly that, similar to the program that Pratima did. We will link to that organization and others that promote women politicians on our website, longestshortesttime.com. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. What things are you trying now as a parent that you have never tried before, either because of the current political climate or because of some other big shift that you didn't see coming? Let us know in the comments for this episode. That's episode 115. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Leighton Brown. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Reka Murthy. Special thanks this week to Brianna Breen. Next week, we're taking on your questions about how to talk to your kids about race. And we're starting right at square one. She stops me and she says, well, yeah, mom, but what does black mean? And um, so that really stumped me. These are tough questions, people, and we brought in an expert to help out. Don't miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, we've got this really cool thing we're doing right now um, to help get more people listening to podcasts. So here's the thing. All this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast that they'll love. Doesn't have to be this one. Can be any podcast that you listen to. Right now, I want you to do this. Think of a friend, maybe your mom or anybody else that you care about, and think about what podcast they would really love. Okay, got it? Now, I want you to do this. Go tell them about that podcast in real life or on social media, whatever. And if they don't know how to download a podcast, show them how. Thank you for spreading the word. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. Right now, we're especially looking for stories about grown-ups who are parenting their adult siblings. Maybe that's you. Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. Hey. 
Hey, you made the mistake of not turning off your podcast in time, so now you have to hear this cross-promotion for Hello from the Magic Tavern, a weekly podcast in the magical land of Foon, hosted by me, a human from Chicago. And me, Usador, wizard of the 12th realm of Ephesius. And me, Chunt. I'm a shapeshifter, but I'm mostly a badger. But I guess I've also been an alligator and a tiny horse with a top hat. If you want a fully improvised comedy fantasy epic, this is the show for you. You can start at the beginning and binge your way all the way up to episode 100, or honestly, just jump in on a new episode. It's not the wire. You'll get it. I join us, and we shall entertain thee hour after hour, o'er and o'er. Also, speaking of the wire, who's Stringer Bell again? Wait, which one whistles? I don't want to talk about Earth stuff. Stand up. You sing your wolf? Yeah. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do.